The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. I'm Zoe Weinberg, and this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Malika Marotra. Malika has worked at the intersection of technology and policy in both the public and private sectors, including Salesforce, the 2016 Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, OpenGov, the Brookings Institution, and Google. She has specifically focused her career on civic engagement and fighting misinformation. Malika, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, both of you. Um, Malika, how did you first become interested in the concept of misinformation and how it relates to elections specifically? Yeah, it honestly, it's a pretty funny story in hindsight. I think during the time it was, it felt very traumatic, but I think 2016 was really the first time where we really saw misinformation be able to impact the outcome of an election. Um, Obviously, there are other key factors, too, but it was the first time that I think misinformation was really at the forefront of an election. And I worked on the Hillary for America presidential campaign. And, you know, I was right out of college. It was the first time that I think I was like very heavily involved in an election, aware of an election, I'm really on the ground there. And I felt like we were doing everything we possibly could to get her into office. And it was a pretty crazy experience when you think about what happened where like external factors and like unvetted information really influenced and changed the way people voted there. Um, And so I think I just was really fascinated by like that phenomenon. It really changed that outcome and trajectory of my career and my life. Um, Like, you know, thankfully, like, we're all like, okay. And like, you know, we've learned what perseverance is. But I think that was really the first time where I was just like, oh, like, elections happen, someone else can disrupt them. How, How do we move forward from here? And maybe if we can get even a little bit more visual, can you give examples for our listeners on what forms of misinformation you were seeing? And specifically, do you think at the root that misinformation is more of a policy and standard setting problem or more of a technology problem? Yeah, I think it's hard to pinpoint exactly what we were seeing in 2016. Because I think there was a lot of stories and narratives about the candidates. Um, I think like, I would argue misinformation in elections has evolved since 2016 as well. For example, 
in 2020, it was really about the outcome of the election. It was really about um, how to vote and some confusion there during the pandemic. So I think while the narrative, like the narratives may evolve each election cycle, but it really is tied to, I would say, like either like narratives about the candidate and narratives about the process, right? And both can impact how someone votes and um, both can impact like um, how, if they choose to vote or not. In terms of your second question about, is it a policy and standards problem or is it a tech company problem? The annoying answer is like, it's definitely both. But at the end of the day, I think like, tech companies have to comply with local law. And like, I think, for example, you look at the US and you see freedom of speech, right? I think there would be a very strange dynamic if like the American government values is promoting free speech and tech companies are restricting what can and cannot be said. And so we, like we as like an industry need guidance from um, from government, from regulators, from key opinion formers to really contribute to the, uh, to contribute to like the strategy here. I do think though, there is like part of the reason why I was interested in this is I think tech innovates faster than government can keep up with. And so I think on like the tech side, there needs to be more communication, more education that can help facilitate that like eventual regulation. I'd love to hear the ways in which you feel like misinformation is different in, you know, 2023 than it was in election cycles maybe a hundred years ago. And what I mean by that is like propaganda is not new, lies about politicians is not new, and yet this has a different quality for sure. What are those different qualities? Is it because it's entirely tech enabled, like what makes this so much more insidious than the type of, you know, sort of lie spreading or propaganda that we may have seen in the political system or in many political systems for many, many centuries? Yeah, totally fair question. And I think like the first answer that jumps to my mind is the speed here and the accessibility. I think like, obviously all of us weren't around a hundred years ago, but I imagine like word of mouth travels slow compared to like how accessible information is today. And I think the other part of it is really like anyone is a producer in this, right? Like back in the day, I think certain people were like majority of people were consumers of content and consumer of these news. Now anyone can produce content and share it. And that like removes vetting, that removes fact checking. Like once it's like, it sounds cliche, but once it's on the internet, it's on the internet and like someone somewhere could find it if they are looking for it. And so I think that really changes the game of like the speed that this information can spread. And just also like, let's be honest, the like volume of content here too. One thing you mentioned just a minute ago was that, you know, a, a key value in our democracy is free speech and the First Amendment. And it would be both odd and counterintuitive for big tech companies to be undermining that or to censor content, etc. One piece of that puzzle that I've always found really hard to untangle is like, you know, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, 
which is like the biggest defender of the First Amendment and free speech in this country, would very much defend Elon Musk's right to censor anybody who insults Tesla, right? Because they would argue this is private speech and part of your First Amendment right on a private platform is to censor whomever you want. And so it's a weird like defense of censorship among private players, right? Like among the, you know, the metas or the Twitters or the Googles of the world. And I've always wondered like how tech companies navigate that because it's true. The First Amendment doesn't apply to a big tech company. It applies to the government, right? So I don't know, like, can you unpack that a little bit for us? I actually wasn't aware of the ACLU's defense of Twitter or X. Um, And so that's really interesting and fascinating to me. I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is a lot of tech companies tend to try to protect democratic values. So you actually can see this with like a lot of their product policies. If you look at their specific names, they call it civics integrity or election integrity. It's not like civics misinformation or something like that. It's very much so protecting the integrity of the election. And I think regarding freedom of speech, it is hard because like you don't want to overcorrect there too. Like I think there is real world harm that could happen on our platforms. And it's like where we translate that online harm to offline. And I think that's where we need like tech companies need to be more like, or need to be responsible there of like understanding the offline impact of what is there. And I don't necessarily know exactly what X is censoring, but I think like we have to think about the harm implications. Maybe even switching gears a little bit, but just on this, you know, thread of like tech companies, their role in misinformation, censoring. I mean, right now the news is filled with warnings of how AI is going to erode democracy in 2024 elections. How do we even start to begin to break down the problem of how generative AI is going to influence misinformation in elections, influence what we're seeing on these social media platforms, whatever you can enlighten us with. Yeah, definitely. No, it's definitely an interesting moment in tech right now. And I feel like it's one of like the revolutions that we will see in our lifetime of um, what's going on in the space. I think... This may be a hot take, but I actually don't think that generative AI is bringing anything new to the table when it comes to disinformation and elections in terms of content. We have, like to Zoe's point, we've seen propaganda before. We've seen misinformation before. Like we know what that looks like and what that could be. I think the concern or the like, additional factor that generative AI brings into the picture is that the volume and the scale of the content and how easy it is to create this content. So like, if you think about it, like editing tools, deep fake videos, all of this existed beforehand. And like, but it took time to like produce and consume. Like if I think it was 2018, there was like the Nancy Pelosi deep fake that everyone 
all like everyone remembers it. Everyone was like every company was tested on their policies of how how did they enforce and like was that allowed on their platforms or not? And I think like that is one video that stands out. There have been like a handful of other examples, but the scale or like as the volume of it has still been on the lower end. Now though, generative AI will make it very easy to create that type of content. So like, for example, earlier this year, I think it was a user on MidJourney created multiple photos of Trump getting arrested. And at that time, like users don't ha- didn't have the ability to detect, was this real? Was this not? Were they looking at news sources? Like, how do you decipher whether or not this is true? And I think while we may not as a society have that skill yet, I think like the same way we've gotten better at like checking ourselves if we see something to verify that it's true or not, I think we will get there with generative AI and like the content that it creates soon. It's just a little trickier because it's images or images are part of it. And I think like, you know, there's that saying seeing is believing. And I think we just have to now like seeing is like, interesting and like to believe it we need to like fact check a bit more i i was just going to jump in if we take your hot take as truth right and we're just saying you know now we're seeing a lot more visual misinformation we're seeing higher volumes of it can you talk a little bit about how we can think about marking this for public consumption to help train the public to recognize these forms of misinformation more easily given that the volume is going to increase? Yeah, it it's a tough question just because I think, you know, if you heard something, it like if you see something in text or you see a clickbaity headline, you're going to be able to be like, okay, is this true or not? And you put it online, you search it, and you're like, okay, what are other people saying or not? There's not a way to do that necessarily with like images, right? Like, are you really going to sit on your iPhone and like copy an image, like screenshot it, try to like describe it or narrate the image to like find the right information? Like that's like, like some people may have time for that, but at this point, like everyone wants information quickly. I think there's a lot that can be done both on the like tech company side and on um, the like user side here, like I know, like you know, I think the White House just like made a commitment with a bunch of like the AI tech company leaders um, that are really trying to work together and collaborate to create industry standards. And I think like you know, having that cross industry effort and education there to make it easier for like users to discern what's like generated or not is like definitely the step in the right direction. And I think that like shows like the great ways like government and tech can collaborate. I think from a user perspective, like besides the like what I just mentioned is like the overhead to like fact check things on your own. I think it's just really focused on like is something clickbaity, right? And like, is it like a headline? Is it like to catch your attention? And I like, I have a feeling like I don't have like this is not rooted in any science, but like clickbaity things I feel like are like always more likely may have some false truth to it or like because they want to capture your attention right and it's like you want that quick takeaway um so it's always like i would argue like slow down when you consume this type of information 
Is this going to require some sort of mass media literacy campaign in schools to help the next generation grapple with some of this content? Or is it just a generational thing? Like I think about, you know, in the much earlier days of the internet when, you know, there were these kind of persistent and very effective frauds that came via like forwarded emails that were like, please wire me, you know, $10,000 because of like some horrible thing that's happened. And, you know, I would say probably like primarily it was like the nation's elderly population that was, you know, tricked into um, complying with some of these requests. And generational change just meant that like that didn't work anymore or I don't think it works anymore as far as I can tell. Um, So is this just a question of like, a generation that is savvier needs to like get to the point where they're kind of running the show or like, do we actually have to engage in a sort of education campaign? Because like, frankly, humans are just like not designed to be able to decipher this type of content, especially like really good deep fakes. Yeah. You know, it's hard because like, I would like, have we even done a mass like literacy campaign on like misinformation and like, you know, looking back at 2016, like that was seven years ago. And like, yes, there's more awareness of the issue, but have we done anything to actually like, or like a mass program to actually educate users? Um, I don't think we have, but I think like, I keep thinking back to like, I don't know if like in like elementary school, when like you're learning how to cite sources, they're like, this is a good source. This is not a good source. And I think like, I am sure that like as the internet has taken off, like and not to be like when I was your age, but like I'm sure as like when as the internet has taken off, like, you know, that like lecture in elementary schools and like schools has changed to adapt to these times. I don't necessarily know whose responsibility it would be to like do these mass literacy campaigns. Like, is it like children take care of their parents and like that's their main mechanism is it um is it like through like public funding or communities um i'm not too sure but i think i like am hopeful that it will be organic for example like i will 100% like i'm in this space and like i thought the pope looked really cool in a puffer jacket like 2 3 months ago and then i was like oh this is not real um And I, like, kind of felt embarrassed that, like, oh, I fell for it. But I was, like, it's a good photo. Like, he looks great. Um, But it's just now I'm more, like, slightly more doubtful when I see these photos. This is a question I've just wondered for a long time. People seem to colloquially use the term misinformation and disinformation somewhat interchangeably. But they do actually have distinct meanings. Would love for you to share like what those distinct meanings are. And also I've, I've tended to notice that it seems like tech companies tend to use the term misinformation, but a lot of like activists and advocates tend to use disinformation more often. Why is that? <laughs> yeah, I can try to give you my take on it. I like do agree tech companies tend to use the word misinformation and like for like just to clarify the definition i think like misinformation is false or inaccurate information about a certain topic and disinformation i think is almost like still is false or 
inaccurate information on a topic, but is more coordinated and like has an agenda or a clear, distinct agenda. And I think the reason why tech companies tend to use the word misinformation is I think it's hard to prove that like coordinated agenda for a company or for tech to under, like call something disinformation, you have to have proof that it's coordinated. And I think given resources and given just like the way of the industry, there aren't easy ways to get that proof. And I think because of that, focusing on misinformation and having policies that contact or that like content policies that focus on that um, are more sustainable. That's a really interesting distinction that, you know, I didn't even think of. I think when I, you know, I'm consuming material, I almost feel like it is a coordinated effort, but now realizing since so many people have the ability to create content on their own, sometimes it's not going to be that. And it's getting easier and easier to sit more on the misinformation side than maybe the disinformation side. Um Totally. Do you mind if I add one more point to that? Yeah, of course. I think when you think about like content moderation and the tools and levers that companies have at their disposal, there's like content moderation or content policies, which is like you can say this, you cannot say this. Behavior policies, which is like how are they using your product? How are they using your tools? And then actor policies, which is like, who is using this? And I think when you frame, when you think about it, it's like a fun little acronym is like your ABCs. Like a lot of our like tech companies policies are focused on behavioral and content because that is easier to get data on. On the actor side, it is much more difficult to enforce just because of what's required to actually like understand who is doing these actions. Just building on that, you know, as an expert in the field, you've been able to either learn of or develop these amazing frameworks for digesting information quality. Are there any other frameworks like the ones you just shared that you have used either in your work or you've seen other people use in the space? Yeah, I think like I don't think there's any. Like there's not any explicit framework to help identify what is misinformation and what is not. I think it really just depends or like it's the process of consuming this information, right? So I think like obviously I have a focus on elections and I think there's a certain way on handling that. But like if you just think about misinformation more broadly as a topic, right? If it's clickbaity, if there's a headline like, you can verify with other sources. If it's something that could impact your personal information or your financial information, you obviously want some credibility there and you should check your sources as well. In the election space, I think there are just sources that like you can turn to that you know are sharing the truth, such as your government sources, right? If any, if there's misinformation about like who can vote, how to vote, when to vote, like everyone, like I'm focusing on the US right now, but globally there is a government entity in each country that like controls that information and like decides that because that is by law usually, right? 
Um, and I think that really is like the source of truth there that you can turn to specifically when it comes to elections. Are there certain approaches that you've seen be more um, successful than others? For example, um, you know, I've always been a little bit skeptical of automated fact checking tools because it feels to me just like an impossible task, you know, like there's a lot of gray area and whether something is a fact or what's alleged as a fact or, you know, whatever. Um, So that's like one piece of it. Um, but it's also just really hard to fact check in real time. But then it seems like there are totally different ap- approaches that are focused on things like, you know, kind of like inoculating people to misinformation. Like, are there, from what you've seen, what are the approaches that tend to work best? Yeah, I think there are many ways. And like, I don't think we've had, like, Truthfully, I don't think we've had enough elections to really understand where, like, which methods have moved the line. And I think, like, the hard part here, especially when it comes to, like, elections and the civic process and misinformation, is you cannot, like, quantify harm, if that makes sense. Um, So, like, for example, like, the outcome of an election may happen, but, like, and yes, that will influence and impact society and the country for however many years after but you can't measure it like it's not something where i feel like you can be like they said x so y happened right and so all these tactics like inoculation fact checking all of them are steps in the right direction like are trying to raise like accurate information but you cannot necessarily associate being like because someone watched this, they voted this way, right? Um, and so it's just truly very hard to measure. So I can't necessarily like rank which one I think is the most impactful. But like I like the optimist in me is like every little bit counts. And the more ways we can like share like the right information with constituents, I think the better so that we don't know which point they're most susceptible to misinformation. And maybe let's even drill a little further down into sort of your expertise in elections. So there is different frameworks that you might look at different elections in different countries through. Specifically, you mentioned, you know, usually a source of truth might be the government. Now, we know in not all elections is the government necessarily a democratic actor. So can you maybe walk through some of the most complex elections that you've seen when it comes to information quality? Or, or what types of frameworks that you use to sort of work through those maybe more complex examples? That's a really interesting question. And without going into too much detail on like the nuts and bolts of it, I think the one thing to realize in this, the same way in this discussion, you know, we clarified or had different definitions of what were misinformation, what was disinformation. The government also has their own definition of what they think misinformation is. And I think that makes it tricky for tech companies because tech companies are global first, right? Like we're not operating in isolation in each country. Like what you do in one country, you want to be able to do principally in another country. And I think that gets 
really hard to do where you can't come across like you're making exceptions one way and you're not elsewhere. The additional factor that I think is that's where sometimes like approaches may be different is governments could have specific regulation or they could have local law that requires tech to operate in a different way. And so I think that's like where it's almost like a compliance issue, not necessarily like a policy issue at that point, um, which like sometimes explains like why there may be differences and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I do think that each, like the more complex situations are countries where governments may have like more elaborate definitions of what is misinformation and more input and opinions into what content they want. But I think at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is the discrepancy between what a government would define as misinformation and what content they would not want to see on tech companies' platforms. But they're like, they're not thinking about it at like the global scale that tech companies have to. What is the craziest example of misinformation that you've seen? That's a really fun one because I think, you know, as I've worked and like read about many elections now, there's just things like there's things that you can never really predict. Like I think, you know, one of the claims or narratives that we've seen were like a certain candidate is a cannibal. And you're just like, what are you supposed to do, like necessarily do with that information, right? Like, if people want to believe it, people want to believe it. But that, I just like, I think when I saw that, I was just like, alrighty. Like, that's a take. (laughs) I love that. Feels uh, very much like there is always you're going to have people that like believe all sorts of things. You have your conspiracy theorists. It's just like there's a whole group lump sum of people that will put out, I think, such random pieces of information. And to your point earlier about the biggest challenge being like quantifying and identifying the harms, like it's hard to know, like, does a rumor like that, like, is it just a funny thing that like most people are not going to believe or like, at what point does it start causing harm, right? And I'm sure that's super hard to determine. We also don't know cultural norms, right? Like, that could mean something huge in one country. It could mean nothing in another country. And, like, it's hard, like, to understand that, especially, like, to, to what I was saying earlier when you think about this at scale. It's, like, narratives are treated differently globally. Something that I was going to add was a comment pulling on this thread and one that was mentioned earlier on generational gaps. Uh, We have these huge family WhatsApp chats where all these crazy videos get sent around. And it's just like very clear that these are obviously not things that you should be taking real information from. Um, And especially during COVID, they were quite rampant in terms of like what was happening, what would be a cure, what you needed to watch out for. And I remember something being sent to the chat by someone who was like 80 plus years old. And it was definitely something I looked at. I was like, no one is going to look at this. This doesn't make sense. And 
people that were older in the chat group were actually taking it to heart. And we had to tell that person to, hi, you should actually take that off of the chat because that's not correct. And it's completely wrong information. And so it was a little bit of a teaching moment between these two to three generations that were all built into this chat to actually sit and combat what people were then taking as truth, when to a whole slew of us, it was just obviously not, you know, even a real thing. Totally. And I think like, some of the tactics used are like, paranoia. Exactly. Um, And like anything that can really pull to like, emotional heartstrings, which I think is a tactic across like advertising across the board. But it's what now, now like thinking about like, what does this mean? And what are the implications of like, pulling on these heartstrings when it comes to like, civic duty, and like, democracy, it gets a little complicated. So in the 2024 election, let's say all the powers that be government entities, policymakers, tech companies, you know, do the right thing when it comes to misinformation, like, what does that type of success look like to have like overcome this challenge? Like, what should we be looking for as an indicator of like, yes, we did this well, or, you know, or we're still in trouble, et cetera? Totally. Um, That's a really great question. And I feel like looking at all those players there where it's like the government, any type of institutions or and then additionally like tech companies i think the best we can do is educate a voter right and like have them make informed decisions and i think if we collectively as a society feel that there was a part done to educate voters identify what is truth what is not and like have them make an informed decision I think that is like the goal. I think once again, we've talked about like on this call, how like success is hard to measure because like, it's not necessarily like the outcome of the election is one way or the other. But I think it's really thinking about like, did we do our part in ensuring that voters were informed? And I think that framing of it, whether it's like from the tech side, obviously it's like regarding content moderation from the government side, it's about like, like responding to like narratives or trying to like stay on top of things. And I think that is like the delicate balance and like the most that we can do to ensure like back to that word that you see in multiple tech companies, like policies, like the integrity of the election is like, was that protected? Are there any specific stakeholders that you think need to be working together today that aren't already working together in this space? Um, And are there more efficient ways to be bringing these people together? You know, I'm sure there's committees and working groups abundant. And so just curious to hear your take. So from like my vantage point, I believe all the right people are like talking to each other. And like, I think, you know, we've learned from like what happened in 2016 and we are like, having that open like line communication between governments and tech companies and like, you know, other institutions and like key opinion formers um, or like, or like 
any entities there. Um, I think, I think those conversations are like being had and like there is collaboration there. Um, since I'm not too close to like those conversations, I don't necessarily know if there's like a more efficient way to be having them. But like, I have a lot of like reassurance that like there is collaboration in the ecosystem that may not have been as like prevalent or prominent um, 10 years ago. And globally, not just domestically. Yes, I would say like this is something that's happening globally. I think there's a lot of focus on the US right now and like partnerships there. But I do think because there is like, like companies are global, um, there is that like attention to like solve these issues globally too. So you've worked for a long time at the intersection of policy and government and technology. For folks who are listening who may want to similarly map a career in that space, what advice would you give them? Yeah, that's a hard question because I think it really depends on like what you're passionate about, right? So like there are different ways to kind of tackle like certain issues that like may be better addressed in the public sector. There may be other issues that are better addressed in the private sector. So like acknowledging that there is like the first like critical step is to understand where do you think you can have like the most impact or like where like is the most work being done on your specific issue. I think the next step is really just trying to understand and like like this sounds so cliche, but it's like learn, like just understand like who are the key players in the space? Like what are the specific work, like jobs and tasks and like projects that they work on to really understand like, okay, what's your interest there? And I think like, to be honest, like the skills are transferable, right? Like you're, you're talking to people, you're solving problems, you're like critical thinking, like it's not that different, but I think like I'm assuming for people who want to like transition between public and private and like have some of that public sector like bug, I'm assuming that they care about impact. And I think like they have to like take a step back and be like, where could I today have the most impact? And I think that answer changes, but I think that's like a key driving factor to like consider when you are trying to think about which side you want to attack the problem from. So now we'll move into our last segment of the show, which is what are you following? I can kick us off. Um, I've been following the India's presidency of the G20 this year and how it's truly a mark of India becoming more of a global leader on the world stage. I thought it was interesting that they've said to have, you know, the highest participation in number of events in the history of the G20. I feel like they're really going all out. And in the last decade, they've gone from being like the 10th largest economy to the fifth. And they're really starting to position themselves to have like a bigger voice in international trade, global supply chain, manufacturing, climate change work. And surprisingly, China is not attending the G20 for obvious reasons. But with sort of India giving itself a little bit of an uptick on the global stage, I found it interesting that there's obviously an arising tension with China because they don't necessarily want India to be the voice of the global South. So I'm curious to see how that plays out because it's just very clear that India's economy is growing. 
there seems to be more avenues for partnership on the global scale. And China's economy, on the other hand, has been slowing down. So that's what I've been following. Malika, what have you been following? Yeah. So I'm definitely going to take a less serious note because I just feel like I'm usually reading the news just to, as part of the job. Um, I actually just restarted reading the Harry Potter series um, and I fully plan to finish all seven books and then watch all eight movies just because I think those are like, not like not to use the word, but it it was like truly magical experiencing those books and those movies for the first time. And I think with so much going on in the world and sometimes like just given the new cycle and given what's going on, such a like easy way to think the world's very negative. I enjoy the fact that like, of like being transported back to childhood and having like the innocence, the imagination and like, just like, the optimism of like the world existing. I can pass it along to Zoe. (laughs) Thanks, Malika. And I love that. I feel like pretty much every millennial I know, or at least many of them, um, shared the same Harry Potter comfort food. And the number of people I know who've restarted the series, especially in the early part of the pandemic, is, um, is like off the charts. So I think you're very much not alone there. Um, one of the things that I've been following recently, and I think it's top of mind coming off of this conversation, um, is, uh, Montana's TikTok ban and all of the drama that has ensued. Uh, Montana officially, um, you know, issued this new law banning or passed a law banning TikTok, um, back in May. It's not going to take effect for a little while, but in the meantime, there's been a huge flurry of lawsuits, including, you know, we mentioned the ACLU earlier. They are behind one of the lawsuits over the suing over the constitutionality of this law. Um, the law, interestingly, would not penalize users and citizens who are using TikTok, but it would punish the company itself or companies that may offer it for download on their app store, etc. And it's funny because I don't think that anybody would have expected Montana to be the state that uh, is becoming a little bit of an experimental ground for testing out legislation around um, around TikTok and the the consequences of uh, of both like banning the platform, but also the national security risks. And so, I've just enjoyed watching it play out. I think it's really fascinating, and that is something I'm going to continue to follow. Thank you so much for joining us today, Malika. We appreciated having you on the show. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Natalia Talker, Zoe at Z Weinberg, and Malika Marotra on LinkedIn. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And with that, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. 